At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it, but what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths, and if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5. Um, we are in our series called Why Bother? Um, and I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever received honor for something? Have you ever been honored for something in your life? Like received something for, you know, an achievement or anything like that? Man, when we think about people in our lives or people that we see on TV, we think of how they are honored, right? I'm a big uh, golf guy. I love golf. I love sports. Um, and, and I love like watching Tiger Woods. I, you can hate him. You can love him. It's whatever, right? But I love watching Tiger Woods play golf. And, and do you know Tiger Woods, he was the youngest player in, to win the Masters. He won it at, at age 21 in 1997. And he made his first, that was basically his first appearance as a professional golfer. And when he won the Masters at age 21, they put this green jacket on him, right? It's the ugliest jacket ever, I think. But it's this green sport coat. And that sport coat represents honor. It represents something that they've earned, right? Now, he went on to win it four more times. And I'm, I'm going to put my money on it. He'll probably come back and win another one. You know, he's had a lot of accidents, a lot of problems. But it represents some honor, Right? There's other people like Steven Spielberg is the most commercially successful director of all time. He's been nominated for 301 awards and actually won 152 times. And this includes the American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Award. Man, these people have done great things maybe. They've, they've created things, they've, they've won things, and they're honored in so many different ways. And the problem is, is that we know how to recognize these people. We know how to honor them. We know how to celebrate them. Even if we don't like them, when we, we look at sports players, we, we, we see them go into the Hall of Fame, and we don't maybe care for them, but we honor them, right? We, we recognize them. We celebrate them through many different ways. We watch shows where musicians are, are celebrated. We watch shows where, you know, all these movie producers are celebrated or, or sports figures are celebrated. And we know how to recognize and celebrate those individuals, but I want to ask, what about the church? How do we honor our church leadership? How do we honor pastors, elders? How do we honor our church leadership? Do we really know how to honor them? And that's the question that we're looking at today, is how do we honor our pastors? So I get the fun message to preach about how do we honor our pastors. So... Get ready, guys. The thing is, is that when we look at this passage, we, we could do this in so many different ways. We could honor our pastors through money, or we could honor them through, through giving this or time or, or whatever, or, or just recognition. We could honor them in so many different ways. But the truth is, is that the Scripture, God's Word, actually has a lot to say about this. And so 1 Timothy 5, open your Bibles to that. That's where we'll be um, to, today, going through 17 through 25. And this week, we're in 
part eight. We're in week eight of our series called Church Why Bother. We're walking through 1 Timothy, looking at 1 Timothy as a whole, and looking at it and saying, why go to church? Why, why bother being a part of a church? Why bother actually being the church, right? And we see that, that Paul's writing a letter to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy, he's encouraging him, he's walking him through the, the procedures of how to run a church, how to pastor a church well, how to actually lead in a way that's God-honoring. Now, Timothy was known and respected by Christians in this time, and this was written straight to Timothy. So I want to point out, this isn't written to the church of Ephesus. This is a letter that's written specifically to Timothy about how to lead the church family. Now, we, we've been through a lot of this, Timothy, eight weeks of this. Timothy's uh, been taught about what is appropriate during worship gatherings. We've looked at that. Qualifications for leaders and elders and deacons and deaconesses. We've looked at that. The posture to have uh, with those um, who are older in the church. We learned about last week and how do we take care of those widows and, and older people. Dealing with those who are teaching different doctrines or, or false teaching and then even more to honor our pastors, which we're going to talk about today. And so this works in an if-then kind of context, right? An if-then sort of way. If, if pastors follow the instruction of Paul in 1 Timothy, then they'll be glorifying God, right? They'll be leading in a manner that's glorifying God if they follow Timothy's or uh, Paul's writings. If pastors are, are serving or ruling in a way that is glorifying to God, then the church is going to basically flourish. The church is actually going to grow, right? If they're actually leading in a way that's glorifying to God, then ultimately the pastor or elder will be a gift to the church. And that's our big idea for today is godly pastors are a gift to the church. I'm a gift, guys. I joke with my wife sometimes, well, I don't anymore, but I used to, that my mom named me Jonathan, and, and that name means gift from God. And so I'm like, babe, I'm a gift from God. Just be, be, be aware of that. But all joking aside, a godly pastor should be a gift from God. Man, my prayer for this, joking all aside, that... I would never be a pastor in this position leading a flock or leading the church that would actually lead in a way that's self-righteous or, or self-honoring or, or a burden to you as the church. I pray that as I lead, that I would be in such a humble way a gift to you, that it would be a, a pleasure to have me as a pastor. And some of you are like, well, we'll, we'll see in the future, right? But I pray that I lead that way. I pray that that ultimately that God has put me in this position and in this role that, that I would always be looking to God to lead me so that I can lead the church. That I'd be a gift to the church or our pastors, a godly pastor is a gift to the church. And so in, in this passage, the first thing we see Paul uh, say is that we need to support our pastors financially. We need to support our pastors financially and Verse 17, it says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, 
Last week, we covered verse 1 through 16, uh, um, and, and Glenn shared with us on, on how the church is supposed to operate. How are we supposed to take care of elderly? How are we supposed to take care of widows and how we function as the church, right? We treat each other as family. We love our family well. We take care of those who are in need. And I want to point out that as we continue that passage, as we continue in verse 17, there isn't a break in the passage. There isn't a break in that chapter. It goes right into speaking about the elders, right? He's still talking about how do we interact as a church family? How do we take care of our elders or our pastors? And so Paul is focusing here. We talked, actually, we talked about elders before, right? We, a few weeks ago, we talked about what is the position of an elder, what is the position of an overseer or a pastor, and, and how they operate within the church. What is a deacon? What is a deaconess? And we talked through that the, the, the elder or the pastor or overseer is in charge of leading the church, of, of shepherding the church, of, of preaching and teaching the Word of God when the gathering comes together, Right? And so that's what he's looking at here. Paul's focusing here on those who provide oversight. The elder, the pastor. And the elders are responsible for a list of items throughout 1 Timothy that Paul points out. I think it's funny sometimes I I hear people say, man, you're a pastor, you work on Sunday, right? I was literally in a conversation three days ago and I was up here on a farm and um, a guy asked me, he said, hey, you got a new position I heard in Lapeer. You're a pastor now. And I said, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And he goes, yeah, it's got to be, man. You work only one day a week. And I'm like, really? Like, you have no clue, right? But it's funny because a lot of people think that that don't go to church. They're like, oh, a pastor works one day a week. They work on Sundays. But as we see in 1 Timothy, the pastor or the elder is responsible for several different things. There are many different roles that the pastor plays, right? We looked last week at the role of pastoral care or, care, or taking care of the, the elderly or the widows and, the, and shepherding the flock. There's the importance of management that we see in, in chapter 3 and 4 in managing the church. We see the job of protecting the doctrine from false teaching, And then maybe more well-known role is the teaching and preaching when we gather. And so when we look at this list of many different things, we say maybe two different roles of the pastor. We see maybe more an administrative side of one, and then we see more of a teaching or preaching side. But Paul, I don't think he's talking about that. Paul, what I think is he's talking about a pastor in general. See, Paul knew that the church needed solid, solid leadership. He, he knew that in order for the church to flourish, in order for the church to grow, in order for the church to actually glorify God, that they needed a solid leader. They needed solid leadership, solid elder, pastor to lead the church. And when he says this, when they rule well, what does he say? I want to look at the first little phrase that he says here. He says in verse 17, double honor. Now, what does he mean by double honor? Let's look at this for a second, right? If you think about double honor, let's look at the second word there, honor, right? When when, uh, we have somebody speak for our wild game dinner or we bring in somebody special to to do something for us on, on stage, we give them an honorarium, right? 
We give them something that's above and beyond their pay or, or whatever, and it's an honorarium to say thank you for the, the thing that you did, the, the, the performance you gave, or, or the, the duty that you performed. We give them an honorarium. But what does Paul mean here by double? Does he mean that we should double a pastor's pay? Does he mean that, that you should pay the pastor double what the church is paying up the road? Does he mean that you get double what the widow's getting? What does he mean by this, double? Now, many different writers have their thoughts on this. Many different writers have maybe put their thought towards what Paul means by double, but I love the way Kent Hughes puts it this. He says this, double here could mean respect and remuneration or pay, reverence and support. Now, we'll touch on the respect part in a minute. But what I want to look at is the remuneration or pay or, or support. Paul illustrates this point by, by referencing or, or quoting two authorities in, in this passage. He references Moses and he references Jesus. Some pretty reputable guys, right? He opens up the verse in 18 by saying this, For the scriptures say... Right? For the scripture says, he's saying, hey, I'm not just putting this out there. I'm actually telling you the scripture says this. It's actually from the word of God, meaning it comes straight from God's word. And he quotes the Old Testament with Moses by saying this, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, pulling from Deuteronomy 25.4 in the Old Testament. And then he pulls from the New Testament where he says, the labor deserves his wages, quoting Jesus in Luke 10, 7. Now, what does this mean? I want to look at the, the earlier one, the ox one, right? Now, the oxen who are working the threshing floor, right, were allowed to eat from, the, the, from any field which they were working, right? In the old days, man, they, they would take these oxen and they'd pull the plow or they'd pull the, the uh, thresher and, and they'd, they'd harvest the grain or harvest whatever they were doing. And it, they basically would not muzzle the ox so that the muzzle was off. The ox could actually graze in the field or eat some of the grain as it was working. And Paul's actually used this passage before in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 to make the point that workers should be allowed material support from the community. So basically, to muzzle an ox would be to keep them from eating or, or being physically provided for from the work they are doing. See, if you muzzle an ox, then he wouldn't be able to graze. He wouldn't be able to eat. How many of you guys have worked in the restaurant industry? Anybody? Man, when I was in college, I needed extra money, so I'm like, can't be that hard, right? So I went and worked at a restaurant called Ryan's, and they had this huge like buffet and, and salad bar, right? And, and I was there, and, and I hated working there. But as a college kid, you're like making money, right? And, and I was working there, and when I found out that if I worked in the evening a full shift, right, I could have a free meal. Nobody loves that. I'm telling you, it was the best thing in the world for a college student because I'm like, like, any free meal? And they're like, yeah, just one meal you can eat. And I'm like, all right, well, I picked the buffet. 
And I remember like every time I worked, I'm like looking forward to that moment where I could actually just go to the buffet and like partake. And I was like, as a college kid, you don't get fed well usually. Um, so you're just kind of scavenging for food. And so this buffet was just huge and it had all this stuff on it. I remember stacking it on. I'm like, oh yeah, just bring it on, right? But the owner didn't have to do that. The manager didn't have to do that. Just as you don't have to remove the muzzle from the ox when they're working the threshing floor. See, what Paul's saying here is an elder who rules well, not a lazy elder, not a self-seeking elder, not an elder that doesn't care about their flock, an elder that rules well, that's following after what God's calling them to, that, that, that is leading in a godly manner, manner, that's glorifying God, an elder that rules well, someone that doesn't, that's doing a good job. That's what he's talking about here, is an elder that rules well can partake in that. And can I just say what everybody's thinking? I'm a pastor. So I can understand, like, reading this text some of you may be thinking, John, come on, are you trying to get paid more? John, are you like, are you hinting towards something? In a minute, we're going to take an offering. <laughs> and we're going to see who's committed. No, that's not what it is. See, the church is at its best. Our church family is at its best when we are faithful to living lives that are consistent with the Scripture with the teaching of the scripture. And so for some of you, you've been coming here for a long time. You call Woodside home. Some of you have just come here today and some of you haven't joined Woodside. Some of you may leave Woodside today after this message. I don't know. But whatever church that you commit to, whatever church that you are a part of, man, come alongside that church. Make sure that, that they're taking care of their pastor. Make sure that they're teaching sound doctrine. And I want to point out, I want to point out too that I'm so thankful for Woodside. The way that they take care of their staff, the way that they take care of their pastors, they, they're such a blessing to me. And I, I want to tell you that, that that is because of you guys, like that, that's an encouraging thing for me as a pastor. At no point am I saying, hey, pay me double. But man, it's such a blessing to be a part of a church. And my prayer would be that as I read this passage, that I would rule well, or I would lead well. I hate that word rule. But I would lead well as a pastor, that I would work hard, that I would lead in a godly, honoring way, that in the end, I wouldn't be a burden, that I would be a blessing to you as the church. The second thing we see Paul say is we need to respect uh, the pastor's. We continue in verse 19, it says this, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those uh, elders who are sinning, you are to reprove or uh, reprimand before everyone so that the others may take warning. Or I love how it says it in a different version, may stand in fear. Now Paul just talked about um, those who were serving well and how to honor them well. And, and he just talked about that. Now he turns a corner and now he's talking about those who 
Um, maybe are sinning. Those who are not ruling well, that are sinners. And how does he say handle this? He says, bring them, right? Or by bringing two to three witnesses. To bring two to three witnesses. This practice isn't something new. It's not something Paul just created and said, oh, you know, we've got to come up with this procedure. So, hey, Timothy, make sure you bring two or three witnesses and this is what we're going to do. No. Paul isn't asking for special treatment here. He's actually drawing from what was already established and expected for other Jews. As one writer puts it this way, in order to protect a person from false accusations, the law of Moses stipulated that the testimony of two or three witnesses was necessary to establish the matter. This began, or became a part of the early church's procedure of discipline. So this wasn't something new. This was part of the church. This is how they actually performed discipline or church discipline, what we know today, that they brought two or three witnesses. See, a lot of times the elders or pastors are, are highly vis- visible or, or vulnerable to the public, right? They're, they're visible in, in their position and rumors can start or whispering can start or accusations can start. And the sad thing is today that unfortunately I feel like sometimes the church, maybe not the church, but people in general in our communities, they want to see the pastor fail. Or they, they want to see someone like that fail. What Paul is saying is be cautious about your accusations. Make sure what you're saying is true. Make sure that you're 100%, bring two or three witnesses together. See, last week we talked about the care of widows, right? And this was a point of contention in the early church within, and it caused some to have accusations. See, the early church was growing, and the widows were being take care, taken care of, but the Hellenistic Jews were, were making accusations towards the elders, and they were saying, hey, you're not taking care of our widows as much as you are those, and so there was accusations that were happening. There was favoritism, they were saying. Paul isn't saying here that every accusation isn't true. He's not saying that, man, when you accuse a, a, an elder or a pastor of something, it's not true, no matter what, it's 100% not true. He's saying here that he's given us clear instructions on how to handle Paul or how to handle it, right? He says in verse 20, But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone, so that the others may take warning. There's a little debate here among theologians um, reading who, who they are talking about everyone or others, right? Is it talking about the other elders? Is it talking about the other people or the other people in the congregation or others on the outside? And there's this debate going on about this. But we're not absolutely sure on what he means by others. But what we do know is the weight of the phrase, take warning. He says, take warning. This last year, we were able to um, go on sabbatical and we were traveling out west and um, my wife and I and, and my two daughters, we went all over the mountains and we were in South Dakota and we were driving through the mountains and, and me, I'm like this adventurous guy. I want to like take the danger to the next level, right? And so my wife, she's not like that at all. She would rather be wrapped in bubble wrap and, and to sit in a chair. 
But literally, we're, we're going, and there's this road that goes off this way. We're coming up through the mountains, and it's like, hey, the gate's open. And I'm like, we got to go through there, right? So she's like, no, I don't think you're supposed to go in there. It says, like, warning, you know, and all this stuff. I'm like, the gate's open, and it says it's a road, so we got to go, right? So I proceed to turn and go up this path that literally is, like, climbing. And I'm like, this is so awesome, man. This is just great. The road is so narrow that my car would almost touch on both sides. And there was just a cliff on the one side that went straight down, right? So we're driving this and it's saying warning, you know, sharp edge, warning, loose gravel, don't get close to the edge. And we're driving up this and not only am I driving, right? I got the phone out and I'm videoing. And my wife is literally like clinching the thing like, you idiot, what are we doing? We're not supposed to be on this road. And I'm like, we're exploring. We got to have fun. And so the drive back down was even better because she was on the side of the cliff, right? But there was all these warning signs like, hey, don't do this. Don't go here. Watch out for loose rocks. Why? It was warning me that if I got too close, I would go over the edge, right? There's danger. My question is, is do we take the warning signs? Do we understand the weight of this phrase that we don't know who the others were, but he says, take warning. Do we take the warning signs that we see in front of us or do we take a posture of pride and gossip? When someone falls into sin, when, when we see a pastor fall into sin and, and, and they step down, or we see a brother in Christ or a sister who has fallen into sin, do we take the posture of pride and gossip? Do we sit there and say, man, hey, I knew that was going to happen. I could see it coming from a mile away. Hey, do you want to know what I know? Hey, do you want to know what I think? Whispers, whispers. Or do we take warning? Do we say, Lord, I need to take warning. Lord, search my heart. Search me for what, for what you want for me, God. See, there's nobody in this room that is above this conversation that, that, that it can happen to any one of us. And so when we see another brother in Christ or a, a, a sister in Christ, do we actually look at it and take warning and say, man, that could actually happen to me. I need to see the warning sign. Search my heart, God. As a church family, we mourn with those who mourn. And see, this demands that we hold a high standard of our leaders. We approach sin honestly and with transparency. We respond by turning from the sin in our lives. And we continue that process of being Christ's ambassadors of reconciliation. But we have to take the warning. Third thing we see is this. We select our pastors wisely. Some of you are like, Phew. Look in verse 21. It says this, I charge you, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. 
the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. As we wrap up this text, Paul here, I love what he says. He says, I charge you. He wants Timothy to understand the weight of what he's asking him, the weight of of the instruction that he's giving him. He says, I charge you, Timothy. Do you understand what I'm saying here? He says, I I charge you in the sight of God and, uh, and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, to keep these instructions without partiality and, without do, uh, and to do nothing out of favoritism. Now, what, what does he mean in this? Timothy is told, do not be hasty in the, in the laying out of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Remember that Timothy is a young leader, right? He's a young pastor, So the temptation for a young pastor in this role is to maybe put those yes men in there, right? Put the the people that you enjoy being around or or put um, people with finances or put people in there with influence. I'll be honest with you, sitting around a table of people who say yes to you is a lot more fun than being challenged, being held accountable, being people that question you. It's a lot easier for you to say, hey, I'm going to show favoritism, I'm going to show partiality, and I'm going to bring the people on that I want to be around the table. I'm going to bring those elders, those pastors in that I want to say yes. And there's a temptation for that. But in verse 22, Paul's concern is with the integrity of Timothy's leadership. He says, keep yourself pure, right? Keep yourself pure. Pure, And then Paul shifts from leadership health to personal health. Paul sees the danger in, in putting somebody too quickly in place. An individual that may be in a leadership role, putting them into place too quickly, there's a danger in that. When we read verse 23, Paul is still talking about the health of Timothy as a leader. Clearly, Timothy stopped drinking wine, right? Now, we don't know the reason. Maybe it was a temptation for him. Maybe he was going through a moment or stress or, or whatever, and, and it was a temptation for him, but he stopped drinking wine, and, and Paul warns against being drunk, right, or, or drunkenness in 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. And you can imagine the stress that he may be going through that, that Timothy had felt. He, he is dealing with a lot of things, right? He's trying to care for the widows and the elderly. He's dealing with infighting. He's dealing with turnover of leaders, He's dealing with false doctrine and the teaching of it. And so stress can have havoc on the body. It can put you in the hospital. But he's saying, in the first century, a common practice of dealing with stomach issues was wine, to have a little wine to calm the stomach, right? And so he's saying, Timothy, I'm worried about your health. Like, stop drinking water and start drinking a little bit of wine. Make sure your health is good. As the church, we have a responsibility to be cautious. To use caution when it comes to selecting pastors or elders. We know this, that our elders, they have a great influence within the church family, right? 
They also sometimes have a great influence within the community around us. And we know that people are human, right? We know that I'm human just like you are. And humans are messy and we sin and we all have a sin nature and things happen. And we have to be cautious in selecting our leadership. We have to hold them in high regard. We have to hold them to a high standard. Our process should never be quickly making decisions when it comes to people leading the church. And this is the responsibility of the church family. Working together. We continue to pray for one another. We pray for wisdom and discernment. We pray for unity and accountability. We pray for our leaders and for one another. We exercise patience with the selection of our pastors, knowing that Scripture encourages us to elect or select our pastors wisely. Man, I'll tell you, as I studied this passage this last week, I literally was like, God, really? Really? Like, I've got to teach this one? Why couldn't you give it to Glenn? Like, Glenn was on last week. Like, we could have easily switched. And I studied this passage, and I'm like, God, I don't want to speak about this. i got to speak about myself. And it was a reminder to me. It challenged me. Am I worthy of being honored? Am I leading in a way that's honoring to God? Am I a pastor that's ruling well or leading well in the position that God's called me to? Am I glorifying God in what I'm doing? Is my character and my integrity honoring to God? And I'll tell you, man, I literally wrestled with God over this and was like, man, God, I need to search my heart. I need to make sure that I'm, I'm the, the person that you asked me to be, the leader that you asked me to be. And so this message, it may not be for you, but it's for me. It's for me. And it's why our pastors serve as under-shepherds. Have you ever heard that term? Under-shepherd? The ultimate shepherd of this church is Jesus. Christ. I love what it says in, in John chapter 10, verse 11 through 18. Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not in this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay, my, or I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Now, just so you know, I'm not the hired hand. I'm not going to scatter and run. But man, it's a good reminder. See, pastors, like anyone have liabilities, they, they tend to overwork, 
They tend to overstress, just like anyone in here. And they have sin like everyone else. And we have to hold our pastors to a high standard. The high calling and the high standards don't change just because of that. We want to hold our pastors accountable. We follow the example they set as they follow the example of Christ. Because we know that a godly pastor will be a blessing to the church. And I pray that that's true in my life. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for the opportunity you've given me to shepherd this flock. I don't take it lightly. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy that's brought me from darkness to light. I was lost before you, Father. And I pray that as I lead God, that you would ultimately lead me, that I would follow you, that you would guide me, that God, I'd never do anything out of selfish ambitions or selfish things, Lord, but you would humble me. God, I pray for this church, that they would hold me to a high standard, that they would hold our elders to a high standard, that they would hold us accountable, Lord, that ultimately they wouldn't be yes men, Thank you for the way this church honors their pastors. Thank you for the way that this congregation has come around me and my family. Lord, help us to just be good followers of you. Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.